imagine the following, you know, here I am at, I think, you know, 17, 18 years old, and, you know, my mom gets in the mail uh, a cease and desist letter from Nordstrom's Inc., from Seattle headquarters, from their, you know, head of legal. You know, my parents are just like, wait, what? Fahan, so you've shown us a good time in Brazil. A few colleagues and I went down there in 2017, actually. I've always wanted to chat with you about life, about how you got where you are today, what you're doing. So I'm really glad to have this opportunity to catch up again. Yes, absolutely, Tony. Uh, thank you for having me and congratulations on the initiative. As far as uh, Brazil, yeah, I've been there for three years now. Uh, I work as a product manager at OLX and I work on the trust and safety team and accounts. OLX, for those who don't know, is the classifieds out in Latin America. And a lot of uh, what we do is facilitating in-person transactions. So living in uh, a country with a high crime rate, naturally there's a lot of opportunities to make them safer. And a lot of my work uh, works with onboarding, making sure uh, the bad guys stay out, and empowering users to make smarter decisions about who they interact with. That's awesome. In a typical day, if there's such a thing, what does your day look like? Sure. So every day is uh, quite different, but there are certain things that uh, more or less happen without uh, exception. We use a Spotify type of model, which is tribes and squads. And uh, we have daily standups every day uh, with our small multifunctional teams of about five to eight. And aside from that, I would say the main constant is uh, just keeping track of metrics, tests that are ongoing and being aware of any changes that are happening and understanding why they're happening. And then of course, uh, basically at any given time, there are lots of dependency decisions that are pending with other teams. So I'll follow up with them, uh, understand if they have any questions, and then I'll relay it back that to my team, whether it's designers or engineers, and try to get rid of any, any uh, doubts that the team may have to facilitate their work. Interesting. How would you categorize the role of a product manager? I've heard multiple takes. So I'm really curious on what you think it is. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the term I hate the most is the mini CEO kind of, uh, I guess, description of it just because, you know, I don't manage anybody. Uh, I don't know many PMs who do, at least not at the normal PM level. I, I see myself as somebody who comes and brings a vision that's based on, you know, our end users the business goals, and then in between that, the reality of the market. And I try to take that, those insights, and productize it alongside with uh, you know my team. So that's kind of essentially how I see myself as the owner of the vision, and then more on a day-to-day -day basis, the facilitator of the execution. And that can be anything from getting in the trenches, you know, doing actual data analysis, or just facilitating uh, conversations. Uh, managing expectations, uh, and most importantly, getting rid of uh, blockers. One of the biggest challenges we have is balancing revenue loss with safety. And safety is one of those things where, first of all, it's hard to know the ground truth of just simply how much fraud is happening, how much assault, uh, robbery, uh, and just kind of spam. And then not only is knowing the ground truth difficult enough, but tracking the benefit of that, right? Like what exactly is the worth of a higher, let's say, NPS score when it comes to regards to trust? I mean, how do I tell the CEO, okay, we're going to have a 3% drop in on our signup page, but the result of that now is an 8% jump in, in NPS. So those are kind of the, the tough ones. 
it's very interesting. I do want to continue on that. Let's take a detour and go back a little bit. As I recall, you've had a very interesting career because you forgot going to college and you started working fairly young at an age where a lot of people were still in school, whether it's university, college. How did you get into that path? Like introduce to us what your road was has been like. Um, you started a Live Nation, is that right? Um, actually, it goes even before that. Yeah, I kind of stumbled upon tech when I was in high school. I did a an internship at a VC firm just as an analyst. And uh, I pretty much just sort of caught the startup bug and, you know, thought, wow, like what a fun space to be in. And even more so, how crazy it is that you can create such such large and impactful companies with relatively scarce resources. So I decided that I wanted to launch a marketplace. And, you know, being, you know, 16, 17 years old, not having a lot of resources, naturally it was either, okay, you build it yourself or it's not going to get built. And over the span of about six months, I taught myself how to code and in parallel was building this marketplace. So we launched it, uh, a buddy and I, and uh, lived a very short life that was full of learnings. And after that, I realized, huh, you know, I actually enjoyed the software development part in and of itself. So I said, okay, uh, I can continue to explore this or I can just kind of let it die. But I really was quite passionate about it. And I actually took a test to graduate high school a year early. And then my idea was, let me spend that year working in software. And if I continue to like it as much as I do, I'll pursue it. And if I don't, then I'll go to college. Uh, obviously, I'm here today without a degree. So clearly, I was uh, quite passionate about it and decided to pursue it. I worked in-house at the VC firm for a while, which was a really enriching experience because I had a chance to work with a ton of different companies who were mostly either pre-Series A or just had received some funding. And I guess you can say it was a, a great place to get my training wheels of sorts mostly working in Ruby on Rails, JavaScript, uh, and a bit of PHP. And that was right uh, around the time where like the iPhone had come out too. I didn't get a chance to touch it, but it was certainly something I'd wanted to. And then after a while, I realized that I wanted to work in-house at a company, so I went to Live Nation, spent some time there. And that's sort of where I realized that I constantly found myself gravitating more towards products in the sense that I was wondering, okay, well, why exactly are we building this? Who's this for? Is this going to work? And I said, okay, how do I go from software engineer to product manager? I decided I would take a gap year to work on that. So I, I thought of that. And then when I came back after reflecting, I realized that that was still what I wanted to do. So me and a couple of buddies, uh, we started a small little contracting firm just here in SoCal. Uh, our projects were pretty varied. Uh, some of it was, hey, we just got 50K in funding. Please make us a prototype. Others were, you know, with companies like Disney, where it was, hey, we need you and seven guys to be on site and, you know, launch this product or just integrate with our team. And a few of those, I had a chance to kind of put on the PM hat and build my skill set, my portfolio. And one of those projects actually took me to Brazil. And uh, once that was done, I decided, all right, I have to either come back to America or if I want to stay in Brazil, uh, find something local. And that's when I found OLX. So that was kind of my, my career trajectory. I think, you know, the key takeaway was that I've always seen myself kind of on the entrepreneur side, not necessarily starting a company, but certainly creating, understanding user needs. And the software developer route was a bit of a detour, but one that I'm really glad I took. Nice. That was a lot. That was a lot in there. That's awesome. Super happy you were able to sort of go through your entire history there. There are a few points I'm super fascinated by. First thing was that you mentioned you actually went to do an internship 
when you were still in high school. So how did that come about? Was it through a school program? Was it through some friends network? Sure. Uh, so I actually was sort of, I guess, forced to do one uh, by my dad. So at the time he was a civil engineer uh, with the state of California. And I did one my, I think, uh, sophomore year or going into sophomore year. And I hated it. I hated civil engineering. I didn't like water treatment. And he, my dad's, you know, said, all right, fair enough. You know, do something different next summer. And uh, a friend of his told him that this VC firm had an opening for a high school student, apply. And I did. And I, I didn't really know what to expect. I just was like, all right, this isn't waste water treatment. Let me do it. And that's how I... Uh, ended up there yeah that's fascinating what was the parts because you mentioned this actually changed your perspective a little bit you were able to see this startup tech world what was the parts that really spoke to you when you did that internship that opened your eyes sure um i think the biggest thing was that it was very relatable to me you know at the time myspace was really big uh, i think facebook was just launching uh and all these companies that i was using kind of in my daily life without knowing much about them, whether it be YouTube, Google, etc., were oftentimes created by people not too much older than I am and with not a whole lot more resources. And then also just kind of sitting on, I guess, the you know, the VC side at the internship, watching entrepreneurs pitch, you know, every day just seeing these people come in with like their passionate ideas and seeing them make it happen, it just motivated me that wow, there's so much around me that I'm using that uh, people just like me are creating. And it, it kind of inspires, you know, I guess the the want to partake in that. Awesome. Wow. So once you had that spark, you decided to learn how to code on your own. Yeah. How is that like? Because I imagine a lot of people are trying to do the same thing, but I think not a lot of people can do it in six months. So how, what was your path? Yeah. So that was at the time where I guess, you know, online learning was just starting to get big. So I was fortunate enough to kind of catch the initial... Uh, tale of that. And it was just honestly a mixture of, you know, going to Barnes and Nobles, grabbing a bunch of books, you know, using things as simple as like W3, uh, online tutorials, YouTube, etc. And then just a whole bunch of trial and error, you know, and I think the fact that I had a tangible goal really made that possible. You know, I think if it was otherwise, I probably would have gotten, you know, a little unmotivated and disheartened by doing, you know, bug fixing. What was that goal? So uh, the product was a marketplace to leverage uh, retail employee discounts. And I'll elaborate a bit on that. When I was in high school, uh, so I was never really that big into fashion, but I I really did like and appreciate good Japanese denim, like raw denim. And uh, it's you know relatively expensive, usually like 200 bucks plus. And I had some friends that worked at, uh, one was at Nordstrom and the other one was at, I think, Saks. And they would get like a 20 or 30% discount. So I would ask them to, you know, buy for me and then just uh, I'll, I'll compensate them and doing that I realized a lot of my other friends wanted to do the same thing so I said maybe I can create a platform where essentially you know uh, someone can go on there request an item someone who works there can fulfill that order and they'll split the the difference in terms of uh, you know, profit and savings interesting so you had that goal of building this platform like a website sure yeah and then you went about acquiring the skills to, to build it so did you actually end up building it we did we did. It was in PHP. I probably rewrote it about three times along the way. And uh, the last time I opened up that code base and looked at it, you know, made me scream. But it launched. It was live. And we got some orders. But then very shortly thereafter, uh, imagine the following. You know, here I am at, I think, you know, 17, 18 years old. And my, you know, my mom gets in the mail 
uh, a cease and desist letter from Nordstrom's Inc. from Seattle headquarters from their, you know, head of legal, Urban Outfitters as well. And uh, they're just like, hey, essentially it's like, hey, look, you should stop this. You know, we're going to sue you if you don't. And in, you know, my mind, I'm just like, no, this is not illegal. I'm just a platform I'm just facilitating, you know, employees are maybe breaking their terms of service. But, you know, my parents are just like, wait, what? What are you doing? Why are they trying to sue you? And yeah, uh, my mentor at the VC firm said, no, no, you're, you're good. You know, keep going like this. You're fine. <laughs> this is working out. But my parents didn't really... Uh, see eye to eye with that so I, I did let it die we did launch it though and it was just a very satisfying experience to actually see something you know go to fruition especially like that you know a lot of people told me it wasn't really possible wow that's a really great story i feel like there's a lot of parallels in lots of uh companies who got their initial starts with uh tons of season deceased letters with um you know napster a um, bunch of companies tons uh, tons Uber, yeah i mean in retrospect uh, spotify I certainly, yeah, I, I wish I didn't give in so easily, but you know, it almost seems uh, par for the course when you're, you know, disrupting industries. I mean, absolutely. I'm yeah. sure at Uber, I, I can't even imagine. Yeah, legal is definitely a huge aspect of ride sharing. You mentioned that through this opportunity, though, you were able to get into your own consulting business or some sort of software tech consulting business with a few friends. How did that start? Yeah, so uh, to be honest, I mostly piggybacked on my friend's network um when i was at live nation my buddy royce who is actually uh this is his apartment he had been already doing that for quite a while and he had a large network uh and he'd been wanting to do kind of his own thing so when you know i came back from my gap year he was on board so were a couple other people and we just started taking on some projects and i also leveraged my uh prior internship at the vc firm because they get just tons of deal flow uh, and a lot of those companies are, you know, they have an idea, they want to launch it, but they don't want to hire like a full-time software engineer. So throughout those just two, three channels, I guess you can say, we got enough deals locally where we had some fun projects to work on. Interesting. So were you guys all engineers? Yeah. I mean, we would, I would outsource some of the design work uh, just to like friends that I would have, or even just, you know, some people on like Odesk or Elance. But uh, yeah, we were just a group of like four or five engineers. And, you know, if we had a bigger project, we would just call people in from our network who were wanted work and, and leverage that. But uh, for me, the best part was certainly that I got to kind of wiggle outside of the engineer room and, you know, put on like a PM hat. So you had a, a great deal flow from this VC company. You had your great network. So you had abundance of work and that allowed you to tap into the other roles out of necessity or out of curiosity? Both, okay. both, yeah. So, <clears throat> I mean, sometimes... You know, I found myself doing almost like user research work, which was not necessarily out of curiosity, just necessity. Like, you know, this person has this idea for business, but they didn't really do that part of the work and they expected it done. So I had a chance to dabble in that. And then others, like I said, uh, the PM specific type of work, that was something that I was very cognizant of that I wanted to move towards that as my full time position as time went on. Uh, and essentially, that's uh, that's how I made that segue. Got it. Got it. When you guys started this thing, like a lot of engineers or even just workers at different companies, they have other priorities. They might not want to start a thing on their own and take on side projects. What was the thing that made your group stand out and say, hey, let's all do this together. Uh, well, let's all do side projects or consultancy work. Yeah. So the the way we sold it was through the lifestyle. A lot of these projects were remote and, you know, people 
of all walks of life can appreciate that. Whether you have kids and you want to pick them up early or whether you have another side project you want to do uh, or you just need to make more money, you know, having that remote option where you can uh, have that freedom is really enticing. So uh, a lot of people came for those reasons. And I like to think uh, we were also just a pretty fun group of guys with cool projects and you know, that, that doesn't hurt either. Would you say those combined were the factors that led you to go down this path of working on your own for a little bit? That was definitely one of them. And I also just saw it as the as a very natural path to becoming a product manager. Because at Live Nation, that's, I, I left that company with the intent of having my next full-time in-house job being uh, a full-time PM job. How did you discover your drive to become a PM? How, what was the enticing parts about it? Yeah, so when I was developing at Live Nation, um, you know, I would get my, you know, my backlog and Live Nation, despite being a very large company, we were part of the lab segment. So things were moving more in like a startup fashion and they didn't have a whole lot of context around the, you know, tickets that would come into me. So I would always go out of my way and ask like, hey, why is this building being built? You know, what's the impact of this? Why don't we do it this way? And there was a, an opportunity where we were creating a mod. We needed to create a moderation tool for some UGC that was on the website, but no one was really kind of, you know, owning it. And I sort of was like, okay, let me see how far I can get with this. So I just created like, you know, I didn't even know it was called like, you know, a PRD, but that's essentially what, you know, I created and then just sort of, you know, took it around to all the major stakeholders said, Hey, what do you think of this as like a proposal and got people on board and, you know, people were really receptive to it at the company. So I'm glad I was in an environment where that was nurtured, but obviously at some point when they realized this was big enough of a project to really have an owner, um, I went back to kind of just doing the coding side, but that was, I guess, where you could say, I realized, yes, this is the role that I want to pursue. What was the specific parts about product that differed from engineering that really spoke to you? Because I figured like a lot of engineers do that too, but they go back to engineering. Yeah. So I would say there's a couple of things. Uh, one is that I consider myself a bit of a, Despite not having a degree, uh, I describe myself as a student. I'm always learning. And while you certainly can do that with uh, software engineering, it's it's limited to, I guess, one domain. Whereas with product, you're kind of touching on design, engineering, you know, research, business, strategy, sales, etc. Uh, and then, I guess, piggybacking on that as well, I remember one of the things I did not like about working in-house as a software engineer is that you kind of have to work on that, you know, nine to five schedule, you know, uh, you, there's no like, oh, I'm in the zone today. I'm going to work for, you know, 18 hours, but I won't be here tomorrow. Uh, so that kind of annoyed me a bit. <laughs> and with product, the thing I like about it is at any given time, you've got maybe six or seven different things you should and can be doing. So if today I am feeling uh, very creative, I might work with my designers. We might start sketching. We might start whiteboarding. Uh, if I'm feeling, I guess, more long-term, more strategic, more vision, I might work on, you know, the following quarter's presentation. So I, I really like that because at any given time, I can find something that I'm genuinely motivated and excited to be working on. And I think that's, in the long run, that's something that's been very, uh, I guess, priceless. So fast forward, what's, what's next? Now that you've worked as a PM for many years, and you've done lots of interesting things. You've had lots of experiences. What is that? Do you see yourself more as a PM and continuing to grow as that? Or do you want to shift into something else? Well, uh, I certainly don't think I've, you know, topped out as a PM by any means. So uh, I don't have any immediate plans to shift from that. I think the only thing that I would probably... Um, want to change and that I am changing because as I mentioned I just left my uh, job at Olex and I'm starting a new one in about two weeks 
is uh, working at a startup. So that's the the new company I'm working at uh, has been around for ten months, and the founders uh, they they did a startup and they exited. So I'm pretty excited about doing that. And then beyond that, I think I would not mind seeing myself going back to a sort of a consulting type of lifestyle or business. As I mentioned, I do consider myself a generalist, and I think consulting slash contracting gives you an opportunity to learn a whole bunch of different environments and uh, and, and styles of work as well. Nice. With that in mind, let's、uh, let's shift gears a little bit、um, because、right. you you grew up in America and your jobs at Live Nation has always been based in America. What was the thing you mentioned? The project that led you to go to Brazil first—that's how you discovered the country, right? Sure. Well,、yeah. sort of. I actually discovered it first going to a conference、uh, to Brazil, RubyConf, and I think it was 2014. And prior to that, I'd always been meaning to make it to Brazil. And why is that? Well,、um, <laughs> I had an ex-girlfriend that was Brazilian many years back、uh, when I was like, you know, eighteen or so. And I just—that was actually my first real contact with the country. And I just remember how how drawn I felt to it, like whether it be the music, the sounds, the colors, the people, the diversity of it.、Uh, but it was never really something that I had made concrete plans to actually go see until this conference.、Uh, and then I went there. It was just as amazing as I thought it would be, and I came back. And about six months later,、uh, there was a chance to do this lead gen project for、uh, one of our clients who wanted to do reverse mortgage work in Latin America. And at the same time, a buddy of mine who I went to middle school and high school with、uh, was working at a startup down there, and he had an empty apartment. So he said, "Hey, you know, come hang out. You know, no worries." Stayed there for six months, and then essentially, I just kind of got sucked in. Loved the place.、Um, And I said, all right, I, I want to spend more time here. Found a job locally,、uh, and that's kept me there ever since. But I think you know one of the things that I I really like about Brazil is it's just so receptive. Because there's a lot of places I've visited that you know I, I think are wonderful. I would recommend to others, but there's few that have been more receptive than Brazil, which I think for a foreigner、uh, definitely is very enticing. That's super fascinating. You said six months. Were you working then, or were you working remotely, or just taking a break? No, no, I was working on that project, doing the the lead gen conversion、uh-huh. rate optimization. But it was pretty pretty minimal. I would say maybe twenty five, thirty hours a week. So I had a lot of time to really explore the country. Wow. Yeah, and it's kind of ironic. I think I know more of Brazil in the three years I've been there than I do the states, which is a little embarrassing to say, but <laughs> that's that's super fascinating. So was your friend? Your friend did not was. Was not Brazilian, right? But he went there as an expat. Yeah, he did.、Um, so he he was actually born in Costa Rica.、Uh, his mom's Costa Rican. His father is、uh, from Iran. He moved to the U.S. when he was eleven. Super bright kid.、Uh, you know, went to Harvard and then wanted to get into startups. And we hadn't even really talked for a few years until I was going for this conference. And I looked up in my Rolodex, who do I know in in Brazil? And he was like one of the two people. <laughs> So the night before I went to Sao Paulo, which is where the conference was, prior to that I was in Rio, just enjoying the tourism. I sent him a message saying, "Hey, I'm gonna be in town. We should grab some coffee." And he's like, "Oh, what? Like, long time no see. Like, where are you staying? This and that." And eventually, he's like, "No, cancel your hotel. Come stay here. I'll show you around." And was a super great host. Showed me around. And、uh, basically, he was working at a company called Viva Hale, which is、uh, think of it as like a, a Redfin of sorts. And they were recently acquired by、uh, by Globo, which is the the largest media conglomerate out there. They make a lot of like these novellas. They own radio stations, etc. Super fascinating. So you got that's how 
that's your gateway into the country. And in the six months, you did lots of exploring. You had a friend there. You were able to really learn about Brazil. Did you study the language then, or did you? I did, and I studied it quite lazily. I'll be, I'll be honest. But because I spoke Spanish already, I was able to kind of just coast off that. And、uh, and I do love the language. I think it's it's a very fun language to speak. It's quite different from Portuguese spoken in Portugal.、Uh, I guess much the same way that. English in England is different from English in you know America or Canada, but yeah, I spoke the language.、Uh, I you know joined a nonprofit as well, working with kind of you know I guess at risk high school students, and just immersed myself in the culture, and then eventually kind of started looking at the professional side too, looking at what would be what would make sense for me, and salaries are obviously not as high. In Brazil, so one of the ways I kind of justified to myself that this would make sense for me long term was, well, if I can find a job as a product manager in Brazil、uh, at a, a pretty competitive company that I'm excited about, that would be, I guess, that would have more resume cachet than I would get in the U.S., then that might make sense long term,、uh, and that's pretty much what I did. My same buddy, he introduced me to the CTO at、uh, OLX, and I, I kind of reached out, showing.、Uh, Kind of some interest and initiative based around the problems that they told me that they had. I knew they had a lot of trust issues and, and safety issues. So after my first kind of initial chat with the CPO at the time, and she kind kind of confirmed this, I just whipped up a case study because I was super passionate about it.、Uh, pretty rudimentary, but I think it was enough to kind of show them that hey, you know, I I think it's a very interesting problem space, and I'd love to to work on it. And I think they they took to that, and then they invited me over for an onsite interview, and that、uh, that took me to Rio after about a year in São Paulo. Super fascinating. Did you have to like? Did you have to get a work visa for that too? I was like, because you、yeah. were working there six months. It was for this, you know, thing. But then you decided to stay. Right. right. So that's uh. So for to answer your question, yes, you do need a, a work visa. And being an American now, I have a new level of、uh, empathy for you know. The people working here on the H1Bs, <laughs> I I did have to get a visa, which is pretty similar to the H1B. It's tied to your employer, etc. While I was working there for six months, because it was sort of an informal、uh, project, they didn't actually you know get me a visa, and I kind of used this loophole to stay there legally, which was that、uh, I have actually、uh, multiple nationalities. My mother's from Guatemala, so I have a Guatemalan passport. And essentially, I get you know three months with an American one before I have to you know exit the country. Three months with a Guatemalan one before I have to exit the country, and I get six months per year total. So in theory, if I had just wanted to run to across the border like Paraguay or Argentina every three months, I could have lived there indefinitely, alternating、wow. between these two passports. <laughs> But now I found a much、uh, more sustainable solution. Right, that's super fascinating. It's like fascinating how people have to go through legal visa loopholes to work in different countries. You said something really interesting about Brazil being very receptive, despite you having traveled to many places. Brazil stood out. In what aspect was it that really spoke to you, the receptiveness? Yeah, I would say、uh, they're a very hypersocial people.、Um, they love to interact, whether it's you know over drinks, you know food, barbecue. They love to travel even within their own country a ton, and they have, I guess,、uh, I guess there's a bit of a xenophilia. Is, is what you'd call it. I mean, they love people who are not from there. Brazil, although it's extremely diverse from within,、um, and th- there is obviously large tourism. But in São Paulo, which is where I was living、uh, when I first arrived there, you know, you don't really get a whole lot of tourists, right? 
yet at the same time, it is sort of a cosmopolitan city, and they do have a lot of interest in the outside world. So anytime someone comes, they're usually quite curious to learn a little bit about them, and I think also to show them that Brazil is a pretty fun country. You know, I think they Brazilians sometimes can be a little hard on themselves with regards to the fact that it's a developing country and that they have you know uh, issues with crime. So they really want to go out of their way and, and show you that hey, despite all this, it's a wonderful place. Uh, so I've I always felt very much at home because of that. Is it fair to say that you found your second home outside of the U.S. after a while? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, after you know three years of being there now, I certainly think that even if I were to leave Brazil today and never ever go back.、Uh, It would always be, you know, my second home. It's shaped me in more ways than I can count, and、uh, I certainly hope I continue to spend time there in whatever you know form or fashion that is、uh, throughout my life. Nice. So this might be an open-ended question. Do you intend to stay there forever, or is it something to be thought about later? Well, I like I said, I've I've kind of, you know, I'm very well aware that the California market is. Very competitive, and obviously, I have family here, so it's not necessarily a an easy decision to stay there. But I've found reasons to make it worthwhile.、Uh, you know, first and foremost, for my career in the beginning, making that segue into product. Afterwards,、uh, you know, for my girlfriend who you know lives there as well, and、uh, we've been together for a while. And now、uh, I'll be taking on、uh, another opportunity that I'm actually quite excited about. But I do think at some point. In my thirties,、uh, probably sooner rather than later, I do see myself kind of coming back to LA.、Uh, it's definitely where I'd like to have you know my family grow up, since you know my brothers, my sisters, and、uh, parents are here as well. Nice. So for Han, one of the questions I'd like to ask everybody is,、uh, what would you like to do in the next ten、uh, years upon your life and career, whatever comes to mind? Well, a large. Part of it, I think, has to do with what we discussed over lunch. I'm just trying to figure out if I want to. We can keep it. We don't have to、uh, put that out there.、Yeah. But I think I know. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's a cool idea, though. Yeah. 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 Maybe one day when when you do have it going publicly, we yeah. can talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's good.、I'm、trying to think.、Um, In life, maybe. I mean, you know, I certainly. Want to make sure just I'm in a position to constantly pursue my passions, you know, whatever they may be. Like I right now, I'm doing triathlon. I've been doing that for about a year now.、Uh, you know, I also have you know a podcast that I'm doing.、Yeah. Uh, I just bought a camera, so I'm I'm a person who really enjoys having flexibility in my lifestyle. I think that's kind of why、uh, I like contracting. Why I see myself maybe going back and doing it.、Uh, so. Yeah, flexibility.、Um, I do plan on living in LA at some point, but、uh, having a, a job that allows me to travel, that allows me to pursue my hobbies, those are all certainly things that I want to、uh, I want to keep in mind when I design my lifestyle. Super fascinating. Do you have any recommendations for the people out there in terms of like interesting things you should check out? I guess because I touched a bit about you know kind of how I went from software engineer to product manager. One of the things that I think for people. Maybe with a similar background to myself, you know, if you don't have an elite degree or if you didn't work at a Google, it's it's really you know it is competitive to get a, a good you know product type role at a you know a hot tech company or any role for that matter. But I digress. One of the things that's really worked for me is to 
not just apply to a whole bunch of jobs and hope one sticks, but kind of take the opposite approach and really select the ones that I think are the best fit and that I'm most competitive for and do everything that I can to, to get that specific job. Um, you know, one of the techniques that, you know, I've used twice now and it's, it's worked both times is, and I think I mentioned this already with OLX, doing a case study unprompted. So usually when you have your first chat with the hiring manager, you know, uh, you, you should naturally get a feel for what their challenges are, uh, but it never hurts to ask explicitly, like, you know, what are the main objectives for this role? And that should give you a framework for, you know, a nice little case study. And that can be anything from eight or nine slides to, you know, full deck, uh, depending on how much time you have, how much you know of the space. Uh, but the reason I suggest this is because most jobs are going to ask you to do a case study anyway. So if you jump on the ball and own it before they do, one, I think that shows your initiative. Uh, and I think it also gives you a chance to kind of control the question a bit more. You know, it might be uh, it might be a little, I guess, more addressable than what they give you. And in both of those cases that I've done this, they did not follow up with, oh, you actually have to do this specific case study. They both said, oh, this is wonderful. Thank you. Like, you know, we'll use this in lieu of the case study. And then I guess the next one uh, would be, uh, and this applies to beyond just software engineers, but if you're a designer or just anywhere in the realm of product and tech and you have interest in being uh, a product manager, you know, it's the there's no clean cut of kind of where product management begins and ends. So because it's so multi uh, disciplinary, whatever your discipline is, you can usually find a segue into how to contribute to the product side from your role. So look for stretch roles, look for, look for opportunities to kind of get involved and, and get some experience. And that'll, that will pay dividends when, even when you interview, if you just have enough, even if it's surf, surface level knowledge, but you, you know, the terrain and you've shown that you're doing everything in your power to kind of acquire the skills. It certainly is an easier thing to sell, uh, to an employer who may look at you as, uh, you know, a risk, right? Because you don't have experience. So those are some things that have really worked for me well. Books, uh, I am a big reader. So one of the books that I've read, Seneca, Letters from a Stoic, I just have to put that out there. I think it's it's the book that I pretty much gift everybody. Uh, to me, it's, I guess you can say my Bible of sorts. Uh, it's a great just uh, reference for, for how to live your life. For me, it's worked quite well. Um, read this book on and off or multiple times I should say for about 12 years now so different letters and messages have spoken to me at different times but a few of the ones that have definitely stuck with me were there's one letter where Seneca talks to his uh, pupil and suggests to him that he wears his slave's clothes once a month and go to court and court being like you know the Roman you know the forum essentially mm -hmm. where they go to debate mm-hmm and to do this to become detached from people's opinions. You know, and this sounds like such a, you know, a, a trivial point, but, you know, we often modify our behavior and, and, and change our perception of ourselves based on how others see us, even though their criteria might not be, might not be all that noble, right? They might be judging us on superficial things. So uh, I just love those kinds of passages. And I think it's just a wonderful image to imagine Seneca, who was like, I think the second richest man when he was alive, going to court, you know, in his slave's clothes and everybody is, you know, decked out uh, in their robes, just looking at him and him being a total badass and not caring. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. But there's tons of little gems there. Yeah, yeah. definitely worth reading. I've been um, 
uh, reading the uh, Marcus Aurelius meditations. Uh, meditations, of course. Yeah, so it's a little bit related, and uh, very so. Yeah. It's, I've been drawing a lot of uh, stoic sto- stoicism out of um, his writing. So, what did you think of it? Because I I picked it up also years back, uh, hand in hand with Seneca, and I I can appreciate it, but I just feel like it's not so. It's a little too general for me. I feel like you know they're very short little like almost passages sayings that are very profound, but at the same time. I feel like they lack the same applicableness as Seneca. Did you I, encounter that at all? Or? I have. I agree. I agree. I, I didn't read the Seneca the in detail, but I've glossed over the writings okay. of both. I think I treat um, meditations more like actual meditations. So I actually don't read the words literally. Mm-hmm. But I have what I do is I have the audiobook. So when I go run, I just play that in the background as. As in sort of just like a meditation, almost like a chant. It's just like these words that sort of flow through me. But like, I'm actually not thinking about the words. I'm actually just thinking about subconsciously, not actively thinking about whatever problems I'm trying to solve, whether it's at work or tackling a side project or I'm trying to write a new thing. Or like I'm just noticing bad habits creeping back up. I'm trying to get rid of. And then using the words as like simple nudges that I'm not taking literally, but like reminding me of the habit of being stoic. I mean, is meditations kind of, or stoicism, like a topic that you've recently just kind of gotten into and you're enjoying it? Or is it something that you kind of try to define, you know, your value system by heavily? It's something I've been doing for years, but I never noticed it's stoicism. Oh, before even... Yeah, I just okay. thought like you gotta live a hard life. You gotta you gotta do certain things the hard way. You gotta not avoid your obstacles. You can't complain too much. And when you add all that up, a lot of stoicism is all that. And I'm like, hey, that's this philosophy applies to me because I have been doing it. It's the values that have been instilled in me by my parents, the generation before that. And I really, I, I part of me identifies with that. Okay. I was like, okay, we gotta indulge life, but at the same time. You don't, you don't want to get too cocky. You don't want to be, you know, complaining too much. You just, whatever hardship comes by. Embrace it. Embrace it. Yeah. It's going to be good. So, and part of my reading um, some of the positive psychology stuff, like, okay, how do we become the best of ourselves? The study of flow. Mm. And like, how do we get in the flow state where you forget about yourself, but you're in an optimal challenge versus skill acquiring state. I don't know if you've uh, heard about that. Right? I mean, of course, yeah, yeah especially yeah. as a developer. I mean, right. so much of your, you know, productivity relies right. on the... Comes from flow. Yeah, and the yeah. fabled flow. Yep. So part of my reading all connected. I'm like, this is somewhat stoic, and it's all coming together. It's about getting to that zone, not letting obstacles get in the way of your learning, but also embracing the opportunity that you have, even though from other perspectives, it could be thought of as like a hardship. So if you want to go on the extreme end of that, there's another recommendation I'll give, which is David Goggins. I don't know if you've heard of him. Nope. Oh, man. So he's a Navy SEAL. Oh, okay. Uh, He was only like the 34th black Navy SEAL ever in history. Wow. He's 40 years old now or so. But uh, this guy kind of defied all odds. You know, he was born into like this broken home, like was like abused as a kid. He has like a hole in his heart. Um, But not only is he a Navy SEAL, but he also was like the world record holder for pull-ups in 24 hours. Yeah, he did something like a couple thousand, you know. Wow. Uh, he's done, I think, something over like 50 ultra marathons, 
you know, he's ran like over 100 miles, like nonstop, multiple times. Wow. He's just this crazy guy, but his mentality is very much so like, look, life is hard. You know, don't cry about it. Like, embrace it, own it. Uh-huh. And there's nothing you won't know. But yeah, yeah. He's, he released a book not too long ago, I think last year. He's been on Joe Rogan's podcast. Uh, What's the name? Chaco's, uh, David Goggins. David Goggins. Yeah, you'll see. I'll check him out. That's but, so um, one last thing I wanted to kind of touch on, uh, at least on my end, was flow. Mm, go yeah, ahead. Because as a developer, I've kind of experienced that on the extreme. Yep. We're the kind of people who will, you know, drink a Red Bull and stay awake for like, you know, two days straight on a branch, commit it, and then, you know, we might be gone for the next foreseeable near future uh, but i haven't really studied it i'm curious to know how is what is flow like in design and do you have any tips for just how we can kind of like make it work for us as most as possible make it work for us as in like using it to create beneficial I guess things better said is have you found a way to easily just get into flow like if i snap my fingers mm-hmm. i'm in flow because for me it's just been sort of one of those things where Yes, the problem space and topic influences it, but sometimes it's just the way I wake up or like my mood. I'm, I'm just, I'm in it. I'm not. Yeah, I think the, the answer to your first part of the question, how do we designers look at flow? I think all designers have different parts of flow. For me, it's like the UI part, which is like you're, you're in Figma, you're in Sketch. You're just like trying to create something that makes sense and your mind is just completely focused on creating shapes, lines, and making sure whatever you're doing um, actually addresses whatever the goal is, right? And that could be in itself very engrossing to the point that like, you, that's all you do, all you think about. That's what typically what most designers think is flow, I think. Mm-hmm. But there's also a part where as a product designer, I feel like you could almost take this and apply it to other disciplines. Maybe you're doing research and the research you can get into the flow state of as each user comes in and you talk with them, you could be completely focused on what their needs and wants are and then the recording of that, whether mm-hmm. it's, through, it's through typing out notes or just you writing down notes or thinking about what they're saying very carefully and you're just like making a very strong mental impression for each user and thinking about as the number of users you interview increase, thinking about the entire cohort in aggregate as human beings, what their needs and wants are and identifying certain patterns. Let's say if you do research, uh, you interview 12 users, right? After the third one, you can be like, okay, I have some hunches. Mm -hmm. And the flow state is that what are those hunches are? How do you identify the patterns with those three? And then as the number becomes four, five, six, seven, all the way to 12, are those patterns becoming more and more clear or are they changing and shifting into other things? Mm -hmm. And that's could be that the figuring out process of that could be a flow for designers. I feel like, okay. at least for me. So in addition to the UI UX work inside a software drawing or sketching program. In terms of uh, how do we get into the better flow? Uh, in the book uh, by this guy Mihal Csikszentmihalyi, which is the prof, the he was also an immigrant from mm-hmm. uh, from Czechoslovakia. He became a PhD here. Very super fascinating. What's older the title guy. of the book? It's just called Flow. Oh, okay. Flow is some sort of subtitle. I forgot the name, the full name of it. But it's like his academic research where he talks about how people get into the flow and how flow is like a way of optimal living for a lot of people. He was saying flow comes from your challenge, whatever you're doing, matching up with the level of skills you already have. Your challenge has to be matched up with your, your skill, ability, your skill. So basically, when you're 
practicing for whatever it may be, which is like pushing yourself past your limit, it's hard to get into the flow. But when you're performing, maybe at your limits, not necessarily trying to get past it, do you feel like you get into flow frequently? Sometimes, sometimes. I mean, it's yeah. hard to define. It's all definitely elusive. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that I try to optimize for creating environments where I can create a flow. Working in quiet environments helps for me personally. Sometimes with music, sometimes without. You try the Pomodoro technique ever? What is that? Oh, okay. So it's, uh, it got kind of, I mean, it's old, but it got kind of popular, I think, a few years back. It's basically where, well, it originated in Italy. I think it was a student who had a timer that looked okay. like uh, a tomato. Oh, wow. AKA Pomodoro in Italian. Okay. And he just found out that there was this, like, I guess, you know, like the law of thirds in photography. Yeah. So there's these little, like, I guess, abstract concepts that just seem to function and be very efficient with humans. So I guess with uh, work and studying, 25 minutes followed by a five minute break, and then repeat that uh, three or four times, and then finally do like a long 30 minute break, 40 minute break. Helped him, I guess, be more efficient. And I don't think he used the word flow, but uh, I have a feeling that's part of what he meant. And at least certainly for me, it's helped a lot to time myself, you know, just do 25 minutes, five minute break, and rinse and repeat just because I, I feel like I'm more aware that I have to produce something and it doesn't necessarily cause like anxiety or fear. It's just more like, Ooh, like, yes, I'm here to produce, you know? And, uh, it's, it's been, it's helped me, uh, try it out. You know, maybe you might find it interesting. I think it's definitely interesting. I definitely want to try it out. This yeah. reminds me of the book grit. It's written by the psychologist. Basically she was arguing like how grit is a character that gets you through basically defines who you are whether you can achieve things in life or not. Um, but also one of the points in there that r reminds me of this thing is uh, the idea that grit is, is a muscle. So it's like self-discipline. Yeah. It's like it is a muscle that you you exercise, but it does deplete. So there's only so much mental energy that you can spend at a certain time. So you actually have to, to optimize for sort of this optimal, this flow state. You have to give yourself breaks to let your yeah. muscle relax get that energy back so you can use it once it's depleted you take a break right yeah yeah so yeah. whereas if you keep on pushing you end up being more um unproductive and you just end up doing something else procrastinate or do something else and and you're not focused you're basically not as efficient whereas you take adequate breaks and you give yourself the permission to do something else relax let the, your energy come back you can be much more effective, you know, after that break. Mm. So this kind of reminds me of that. Yeah. And yeah, no, I think yeah. it's a similar concept. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably the theory. And then the Pomodoro technique is like one of the ways to apply that. To, to apply that. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I want to try that. It's cool, yeah. man. I mean, I, I try it out. It, it's not like a daily thing for me, but when I find myself struggling to concentrate, yeah, that that's like, you know, an instant remedy. The instant yeah. Remedy. You do that and you're like, oh no, like I have, you know, these four blocks and you, you're supposed to really draw like circles too. And then you kind of like that help. I guess the visual aspect kind of helps tangibilize like how important, you know, each one of these little blocks huh. are and to make the most out of it. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and 25 minutes is just, it's a great chunk of time. I think in a lot of disciplines, probably I think design as well where you can actually get something done. Well, thank you very much for Han for this lovely conversation. And thank I you. hope to uh, have you again sometime in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. Until next time. Bam. Bam. That's it, Bam. man. What I didn't realize is like turning on the mic, it, it actually re restructures the entire. It does. It's so funny, right? Yeah. It's so the funny. entire thing. <laughs>